0: All right, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be starting a new series today. We're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to uh, 12. If you are physically able, please stand and reading God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, sorry, for they uh, shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you. You may all be seated. As we begin the new year in 2019, uh, I usually would go through the study of the New Life DNA, but in reflection and prayer... Uh, I thought it would be best for me to not do that this time around, and I wanted us to take a journey for the next eight weeks studying the Beatitudes and how that marks us as Christians. It will lead us all the way up to the 40-day campaign, and hopefully we can all be blessed in the midst of this study. Now, this first week, we're going to do an overview introduction of what we're going to be looking at for the next eight weeks, and then uh, next week, we're going to look at each of the these amazing supreme blessing individually and hope to really expound so that it really feeds into our soul. The Sermon on the Mount is first of the five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. It is not only the first of the five, but it's also the longest of the five. It deals with the ethical issues of fundamental importance in every age, and this sermon has birthed so many more books and articles than you can ever imagine. I don't think it's an overstatement of any kind, but it is probably the greatest sermon ever preached in all of humanity. It is still relevant today, and that's why I believe the study will be so helpful for us In our modern day context. Now, if you are to read the Sermon on the Mount, there is one unifying theme that we all have to kind of agree from the beginning, and the unifying theme is the kingdom of heaven. Look what it says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every one of these blessings, the one unifying theme is the kingdom of heaven. It's something that Jesus preached and taught consistently. He started to preach this in his earthly ministry in the beginning. He also talked about it for 40 days while he, before the day of Pentecost, while he would be sent up to be with the Lord, he did that for 40 days, and he continued, it says in Scripture, to preach about the kingdom of God. The theme of the kingdom of God envelopes the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verse 3 and 10. It appears in chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, and it returns at the heart of the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6, verse 10. It climaxes at the section of the kingdom perspectives in chapter 6, 33, and it's presented as what must finally be entered in chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. But Matthew places this sermon immediately after two verses insisting from Jesus' teaching of the ethical guidelines for the life in the kingdom. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at This was the gospel that he preached in verse 23 of the same chapter in 4. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The reason why he starts to preach this is because that's why he was sent. He was supposed to preach the kingdom of God. That's why he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? I have come, and in my incarnation, it is now inaugurated. It is here for you to experience. But then he goes on to say, but now that you know that the kingdom of God is inaugurated, I want to give you some guidelines as to how to live in the kingdom see god does not make mistakes nor does jesus in his orderly fashion of teaching it's nothing is misplaced even the order of blessed are those none of that is misplaced everything has a purpose in it it makes total sense to me because if Part of the call for Jesus was that in his coming, in his inauguration, as I said, he inaugurates the kingdom of God. He's also wanting us to learn how to live amazingly fruitful lives in the kingdom. Now, church, you know that everyone has a kingdom. I've often explained this. A kingdom is a sphere where what you say goes. John Ortberg, as he quotes Dallas Willard with a definition, it says, It is the range of your effective will. It is that little circle of control what you say goes. What I want, I want, and I want it to happen. Now kingdoms are very important to us all, even as children. I've often used this analogy when children will write on their door saying this is my room. It's another understanding that they're building themselves their own kingdom. It's my toy. Don't touch. It's my mom. It's my dad, even though they're all same siblings. But for some reason, the kingdom thought is placed in. They now, even as little children, force out the kingdom of God, and they have learned naturally to build their own kingdom. But in God's kingdom, we find things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control when God is in charge of that kingdom. That's what we always find. In man's kingdom, we find quite the opposite, things like hatred and discord, sadness and bitterness and envy and discontentment and faithfulness and so on and so forth. So Jesus taught us to pray even, the kingdom of God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His message was not primarily that we would go to heaven when we die, which is also part of his message, That was by grace through faith, but this message that he would speak to the people of God, to those who did not know God or did not worship, he said this. The message that I want to give to you about the idea of the kingdom of God is available to you right now in your work, in your home, even on your Monday morning drive without no coffee. This can be given to all of us. Now, if the kingdom of God was so important to Jesus, he then would make sure that he would give us guidelines as to live the fullness of life in that kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is just that. It provides an ethical guideline for the life in the kingdom. Now, as we kind of go a little bit more detailed into the Beatitudes and also the Sermon on the Mount, the important thing that we have to remember about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's a description of character, not a code of ethics or morals. It is not regarded as a law or a set of rules or regulations, which are to be carried out by us, but rather as a description of what Christians are meant to be. That's an encouragement to me and to you, that this is attainable for every single one of you. No one is discarded. No one is left alone. No one does not make the cut. Jesus says that this is the only kind of person who is supremely blessed, that is, tremendously happy. Someone has once suggested, and he put it like this, This is the sort of man who is to be not only celebrated, but also to be envied, for he alone is truly, supremely happy. Now happiness is a great question confronting a lot of humanity, isn't it? We all long for happiness, and it's sometimes tragic how the world seeks it. The things that we have sought have often given us and produced misery. Anything that helps you to ignore, evade difficulties and merely makes people happy for the time being is ultimately going to add to their misery and to their problems. See, that's the deceitfulness of sin. It is always clothed in some kind of happiness and it gives us a false sense of happiness. But ultimately, it leads to unhappiness and final misery and wretchedness. Oftentimes, we try to escape from reality, don't we? We are constantly trying to escape reality. Whether we are medicating ourselves, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be idolatry, it could be recreation, it could be food. It could be anything that takes us away from the very thing that I want to escape from. But what we need are not temporary fixes. It isn't medicating ourselves, but to truly experience, get this, a state of continued, same direction into the heart of Christ's happiness, blessedness that we can no longer escape. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the Beatitudes. If you truly want to be happy, this is the way to be happy. It is through living out the Beatitudes. This is the only way to truly be blessed. Now, I'm going to stop here for a minute. The last two Sundays, I spoke a total of 31 minutes. So that's usually my average for one sermon. So today, it might be a little longer. I'm just wanting to let you know. <laughs> uh, I now have some surplus of time left, and I want to explain to you. Prob- I just wanted to let you know. Now, uh, I said this, all Christians can be alike. What does that mean? Like this. See, the Beatitudes is a description of what every Christian is meant to be, you and I. It isn't from the supreme Christian who is head and shoulders above other Christians. There isn't a classification between super-Christian and ordinary Christian. There are distinctions of offices in the Bible, of course. Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, and so on. But the Beatitudes are not description of offices. They're ultimately descriptions of people whose lives are given to Christ. This is what it means. Church, be encouraged. If Jesus truly believes that this is what is meant for every Christian, then he believes that it isn't just that we are born naturally with a disposition, but something that we can definitely become. It might not happen the very next day. It might take all of our life here on earth. But with the Holy Spirit, it is possible. So as we stare at one another, and as we look and do community one another, we can safely say, you are always meant to be like this. It's just taking some time, but the work that the Holy Spirit does, he's always consistent, proportionate, and faithful. Maybe you started this New Year's resolution to work on relationships or some kind of spiritual area, And how often we fall in so many areas and we become really disappointed in ourselves and we go back to our old selves. But that will never be for a Christian. You will, through the Holy Spirit, become all this because it was not meant for some supreme, extraordinary, all-star Christian. It was meant for everyone. The Christian height and the life is not meant for the select few, and the rest of us are meant to live dull and boring lives that act counter to what we actually read in the Sermon on the Mount. This description that we are studying is a description for every single one of you. I, I need you to understand that. I need myself to understand that. I can be supremely blessed as I live this call out that it was meant for every single one of you. You know, sometimes we bring the atmosphere and the culture of competition that we always tend to compare and classify ourselves. That person is exceptional while I'm normal and bland. See, when you compare, you will always feel good one minute and then feel lousy in the next because there will always be someone better than you and always someone not as good just yet. As you. Sometimes we feel like I just don't meet up to the standards, but that is when the grace of God comes to our hearts. How many of you guys have fallen on your knees and saying, God, I want to become more this way. And God says, you still have a race of faith to run. It's not complete, but my grace will come and envelope you. Be patient because I have a mighty plan for you. Now, the Beatitudes, another way of looking at it is, it has to have proportionate growth. Just like the fruit of the Spirit, it is supposed to have equal growth in all areas, so it is with the Beatitudes. You are meant to have proportionate growth. You don't grow in one area while you are dormant in the other. Then that wouldn't be the work of the Spirit. All Christians are meant to be all of them and to manifest all of them at the same time. But as I said before, we all have what? Seasons of growth. Some people grow more slowly. Some people grow and have seasons of exponential growth. But we are all growing nonetheless in the seasons of our faith. I believe that every one of you can manifest and grow in this this year. Here's what I mean by proportionate growth. You can't be poor in spirit without mourning. You can't mourn without hunger and thirsting righteousness. Each of these graces that God provides, which are eight of them here in the Beatitudes, demands each other, and it is impossible to grow in one while the other one is dead and dormant. That's not the work of Jesus Christ. Whether it's incremental, even by mere millimeters, God is still doing something in your life, and he is growing you whether you know it or not. All of you understand this analogy. When you were a little baby or maybe you were in grade school, there was always that door your parents used to mark a pencil to say where you were in your height. We had one of those. And they would mark it and they would have a little date, January something, something. So I was born in, can I share? (laughs) In the 70s sometime. And, And so it's January something, something, and he was this tall. Six months later, you don't even know that you are growing, and then your parents mark you again, and then it's come a little higher. It's like that. You are growing. You know, we are so hard on ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that every single person is used to what my culture is growing up, but in the Korean culture that I grew up, my culture is always known to really pin out and pinpoint the mistakes. I've said this, you can be part of a Yo-Yo Ma cello concert, and you can... Not here, all the wonderful things that he played, but there's one area you, he's made a mistake, and you're like, wow, you made a mistake. We're so hard on ourselves because we have to show face, we have to ascern, uh, ascertain some kind of a level, but here what Jesus is saying is, you are proportionally growing, and each one demands each other, and we can see it as a whole, not divide them individually. So, how do we get this? I want to say it is not naturally inclined that we as human beings are going to be like this because we were born with a certain disposition. It is only produced by grace alone and the working of the Holy Spirit that works within us. I'm going to repeat that again. It is only produced by grace alone and the working of the Holy Spirit that works in us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's by grace alone, through the outworking and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, not by our natural disposition or virtues or our will, but this is something that grace alone does through the workings of the Holy Spirit. And you can go down the list. No man or woman naturally conforms in this way. I don't believe these are natural-born qualities, not by birth, not by nature. This is only through the mighty outpouring produced by the grace of God and through the Holy Spirit. What an encouragement. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that will continue to produce in you these amazing things. Now, as we launch off into 2019, I'm not God. I do not know what will happen to me or to you or what we are involved with. But we do know God is going to do one thing. And I want to rest on this word. It's the word sanctification. Now, I don't know if you have ever studied the Westminster Catechism or the shorter catechism. I had to for my um, ordination exam. And it's question 35. You don't don't have to worry about it, but these are all these questions. And this is the question. Okay? What is sanctification? It is the work of God's free grace. I love that. It's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die onto sin and live unto righteousness. Another way put, it is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits, forming in us Christ-like affections, disposition, and virtues. It doesn't mean that sin is instantly destroyed or eradicated, but it's also more than a counteraction in which sin is merely restrained or repressed without being progressively destroyed. Sanctification, then, is a real transformation, not an appearance for a moment of time. Sanctification. One of my friends, who is a very, very well-known certified coach, and he pastors as an executive pastor for a multi-big, I don't know what you call it, is a giga or mega, whatever, it's big, right? As an executive pastor, he and I serve together in Dallas, and every year on his social media, on Twitter, he always says, this is the word I want to focus on this year. I said, that's a great practice. I don't know what word that you want to focus on, but I want to give myself some room to fall, not because I intentionally want to, but because I want to see this sanctification of real transformation come to life. See, when we are born again, it's called regeneration, Regeneration is actually birth, theologically speaking. Sanctification is growth. See, in sanctification, the Holy Spirit works in you both to will and work according to God's amazing purpose, enabling His people to fulfill their new godly desires. Christians become increasingly Christ-like as the moral profile of Jesus is progressively formed in them. It's a lifelong journey. It takes time. I am highly impatient. It takes time. Sanctification is about real growth. Church, please know this. God isn't finished with you yet because God meets us with unexpected grace. Don't be discouraged. He has a great plan for you. He not only is regenerating us, birth to new life, but he's also sanctifying us, real growth. Right now, whether you know it or not. If you are going through the refiner's fire, please know God is in the process of making you more genuine and beautiful. Sometimes I think beautiful and Paul, does that mix? But in his eyes, beautiful. In his eyes, you're the apple of his eye. We read in Psalm 17 yesterday during morning prayer, you are the apple of his eye. You notice he didn't say pumpkin. He said the apple of eye of his eye, and he will cover you in the shadow of his wings. You will come out of this refining process bearing much fruit. It isn't enjoyable, but a time to reflect, a call for greater humility, and most of all, you will become more like Jesus as the Spirit continues to work in you. You see, God wouldn't put you through refiner's fire if he didn't think you were valuable enough. You go through it because you are deserving of being refined. The heat that we go through in the refining sanctification process is all a plan of God so that you can reflect God in you. That God might be reflected in us. Slowly, as you understand the sanctification that we are going to be like this, we were all meant to be like this, when you slowly realize this, that God loves you even in your suffering, then you will then begin to approve of what is happening to anything that is happening in our life. Sometimes you will realize pain can do what joy possibly couldn't. I'm going to say that again because it was really hard for me to write this. Sometimes you will realize pain can do what joy could never do. It will expose all the vanities of life, filling us with the hope of what is to come of the kingdom of heaven or the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. One author wrote, It's not when we are enjoying Christ the most that we glorify him best. It is when our hearts are consciously cold and dead, when our feelings are all distressing, when we walk in darkness and have no light, then we display the wonderful glory of God. It's because how the work of the Holy Spirit is done in our life. Church, God isn't finished with what he is doing All of us are going through seasons. But remember this, the word sanctification, that there is real growth happening. In the next eight weeks, including this week, what we hope to really do is take a look at every one of these. It's almost like a treasure box, and we're going to unlock it because we're going to study what does it really mean to be poor in spirit. No one likes the word poor. But in the kingdom This teaching is often said it's an upside-down kingdom. When you understand that understanding, then you will truly know what it means to be poor and to be truly blessed. Because for those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. For those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I want us to do this because sometimes we don't read the word of God together enough. So if you can get your Bibles out for those who have the physical Bibles and your smartphones, uh, let's read the Beatitudes together. We're going to start from verse 2 and then finish in verse 12. I'm going to read one verse and we're going to go back and forth. Is that, it's a call or response. Is that okay? And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor, Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And let's read together, church. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Isn't that amazing? Rejoice and be glad. It's what God wants us to see, what he wants to see in our life. I pray that for all of us, whatever direction that we will take in 2019, that in whatever corners of the world where God will place us, that there will be great growth, that we would be meant to be like this by grace alone, unexpected grace, the outworkings of the Holy Spirit, and that we would know that God is never finished with us. Let's pray.